And you're recording, right? I am recording. Wonderful. Through Adobe Edition. Not quite a sponsor, but they should be. <laughs> Welcome home. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to like f- up your flow. <laughs> the Adobe plug just really just threw me. Put that is the top of the show. The cold <laughs> open. Got a lot of cons. The cold open is actually going to be the cold open. <laughs> I understand that you've shot your own satellite into space. Hello, and welcome to Entertaining the Idea, season two, episode number 11. This is the podcast where we discuss the creative process from the perspectives of generating and consuming content. I am one of your co-hosts, John McStravick, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host. Hey, this is Anthony Hudax. Anthony Hudax, we're back at it again. Again. Can't keep this down. Nope. Even though we had a little bit of a small break in there that nobody will know about. Exactly. Uh, we are here again. We have plenty of topics to still discuss and to cover. So we'll keep this moving along. So we're keeping along in our double digits now. We're up to number 11. Woot, woot. Love it. I can see how excited you are. Dancing. All right, well, that's enough of the small talk. Let's just kind of <laughs> get into it on this episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, uh, no, how is life? Uh, did you uh, take your way down to the beach for a little bit? I remember we you did, saying we did. We got a, we got a, um, we rented a place in Gardenia to uh, be close to the beach so that we could have kind of like a faux vacation without leaving Los Angeles County because we're still a hot spot of coronavirus and we don't want to like leave anywhere or like be in any place where we're going to like transmit the disease but like we like being by the beach so actually my family has been able to enjoy that i have not because i'm still wrapping a show that i'm working on as an editor so we have all of our stuff that we still need to do so i've just been uh living up in the house and occasionally uh traveling down to the rented beach house how about yourself what are you doing? Uh, honestly, there is nothing new going on. <laughs> it's the same day, same hour, same week, whatever it may be. I, I've, again, lost all track of time. And it's it's just another day living life in a pandemic. I really actually want to rewatch Groundhog Day. Like, after having lived so long in this pandemic, I'm like, I wonder if it will resonate with me in a different way than it did when I was like 20 or something when I watched it for the first time. Like, I just want to see if that day after day after day of the same thing really hits me harder. Oh, that's actually not a bad idea. Maybe it'll give us a different outlook on life. And maybe then the next day I wake up, I'll be like, this is a brand new day that I can do whatever I want. And then the next day will be the same (laughs) thing again. Oh, uh, Lonely Island just put out a movie that's on Hulu. That's basically Groundhog Day, only a little bit different. Oh, Palm Springs, right? Palm Springs, yeah. Yes, I've been hearing about it. It's on, we added it to our queue because I definitely want to check it out. I love Andy Samberg, so. As do I, as do I. Okay, I didn't know it was Lonely Island though, so even better, but uh, I'm hearing good things about it. All right, wonderful. Well, let's then, like I said, let's just keep this train rolling along here. It. And uh, before we jumped into our other topics, I was I had this on my mind the other day. We, we talk about this a lot, and we use certain words when we discuss a lot of 
topics here. And one of those words that keeps coming up and it's very much in the vernacular of our modern you know, media landscape here is the use of the word creator and content. And I just was curious if you think these terms are appropriately applied to kind of what we do and what a lot of people are doing nowadays. We talked about being a multi-hyphen in the past, or do you think these type of words devalue the kind of work that people are producing uh, because they're more of a catch-all rather than focusing on the art of what we are producing because it's always like we need content we need content we need content which can feel like it's devaluing what is actually being made so i was just curious at where you kind of fall on that and if you had any thoughts on that idea i think my big thought on that is that i understand that content creator basically you know, means like YouTube or podcast. It is not somebody who is like, I'm an executive producer of a hit show on, you know, HBO. It's, if you're a content creator, you're doing like YouTube, you're doing the stuff that you're able to essentially self-publish. And I think one of the things that I realized like a little bit ago is that you know, people who are doing this stuff on YouTube are making millions of dollars and commanding audiences that are bigger than most network shows. And the same thing with people yeah. who are making podcasts are creating, like, when you think about the Joe Rogan experience, who I think is, like, the top podcast now, maybe it's, like, been replaced by something, but I think it's, like, up there. But they get, like, something like 30 million people to consume their content per episode on like a weekly cadence if that was a television show that would eclipse friends in its heyday 25 years ago right and i so in that respect i never think of like content creator because of that logical line i don't think of content creator as like a pejorative i just think of it as like somebody who's playing in the new media and not necessarily playing in the old guard. Well, what about just with, when you're talking about all these streaming services where you kind of just see, we need content, they need content. You just need to produce stuff. Do you think that devalues though, actually when people are making films for say a Netflix or a Hulu or Amazon, just by calling it content and they, they just almost don't care almost what it is anymore. They just need more of it, whatever it is, be it a TV show, be it a, a film, be it a short, uh, be it, you know, any kind of other sort of visual medium that product to produce, do you think that is, is taking away from what actually is being made? I See, I don't think so, because I think it's one of those things where, and maybe it's because it, being in the like industry long enough to kind of see how things go, the minute you're able to make something, that adds value to whatever you're doing. So you can come up with like a great script, right? You go to a production company and you're like, I have a great script. And they're going to be like, what have you done? And if you have, well, I haven't done anything, but I wrote this great script. There's this like skepticism. But if you're like, oh, I did a short film that was on Hulu. They're like, oh, really? Okay, let's take a look at this. And it just is sort of like an appreciation for as long as you're getting any type of thing off the ground and into production and into a final form that's able to be consumed, that is legitimately all anybody cares about. And if it's good, 
that's the pressure you put on yourself and that's the pressure that other people will put on you. But even if it's not good, nine out of 10 times, just having the thing being made and finished would be like, oh, well, you're different than the 800 million people who have tried to do this and got halfway through a screenplay or got halfway into acting or did like two auditions and then never did anything. It, it's all credits. As soon as you have a credit, it's a thing. I love it. I, I think that's a I think that's a great way to look at it because I just see it a lot and I use the terms a lot, especially us talking about some of the topics we talk about here. We use these type of words a lot too. For sure. And on one part, sometimes I do feel like just content, it's kind of more of a business term in the sense of like we're talking about you know, executives from these different companies and producers, and they just use it as kind of a catch-all term. It almost means a lot more because there isn't just film and TV delineations anymore. There's a whole lot of kind of in between all of that now too. And there's more expanding type of mediums and ways, uh, structures of stories that aren't traditional in a, in a legacy way of just, oh, well, here's a two hour film and here's a half hour sitcom or here's an hour drama. Yeah. And I think it's just easier as a catch all to just say content. So it's, it's less of, like you said, a pejorative and more of just the best way to, you know, summarize everything that what people are looking for. And I think a creator is, is just a new, uh, evolution of a term of uh, what we talked before where people used to be specific kind of roles where they were a director or a writer or a producer or so forth where now having more of that multi-hyphen you you get more of a all catch-all kind of term to describe yourself because you're doing more than just one thing which in we like we discussed in the past is is very important and it's actually shows that you have a wider breadth of ability and interest and focus, which is a good thing nowadays because there's many mediums that everybody can get into. Yeah, I actually think it's kind of a luxury now if you can say that you're just one thing. If you can say, I'm a writer or I'm a producer or I'm a director, it is very much a luxury because nowadays anybody trying to do anything in media, like in trying to come up and trying to bust in or however like the terminology is now, is you have like we talked about before you have to do everything you have to be the writer and the actor and the editor and the distributor and everything so everything everything the everything. promoter the, is, the advertising the department the like <laughs> the catering department like you gotta be everything so we all do it all all right, so let's move on then into what we are watching what do we watch since the last time we spoke well I got really into Veronica Mars. And I know it's like an old series that has been verified by everybody as being really great. And I just, I started watching it and I watched two episodes and then I told my wife and I was like, hey, this is a really great pilot. You really should check it out. And she was like, okay. We started watching it and now we are ripping through episodes. So that is like our downtime that eight o'clock after dinner like when you just want to kind of like watch something we watch veronica mars and you can watch it together yeah so how long have you been, been into it now uh, we, uh just about three weeks okay. so we're into the third season there's four seasons of it i think we're into the third if i remember correctly it's hard because of streaming services it's on hulu it's hard because you just kind of keep rolling through and it doesn't tell you when you're breaking into the next season. And it's only once you've taken a break 
and you notice like, oh, we're season two, episode 17 or something, that you realize where you are in the arc of the story, you just kind of keep following it. Yeah, we had that when we were watching Parks and Rec, the same thing where you watch an episode and you're like, this feels like a season finale. And then you and then you just move right into the next episode and you're like, there's a few things that feel a little bit different. They all look a little tighter. They look a little older, something, you know, they're just not quite the same matching up stylistically perfectly. Like it's very close, but there's just, you get, when you get really in the weeds with watching a show, you can notice nuances of changes. And then you're like, I think this is a new season. And then, like you said, you, you exit out of the menu. You're like, yeah, that's we're on now season five, episode two. Okay, that makes One sense. One of my favorite things, and this is a game that everybody can play at home, is watch a pilot and then try and predict all the things that are going to change into episode two. Because the pilot was shot probably like three months before episode two was shot. My favorite is The Office. The Office looks so different from episode one to episode two. They rearranged some stuff. They cut people's hair. Like they made it. Veronica Mars's pilot is crazy because you can tell the reshoots because she has a different hair length. Legitimately, she starts with like long hair. Then she has like short hair. Then she they try and like tie it together by pulling her hair back at one point. It's amazing. No, you're right. The, the office, there's people in the pilot that are then not in episode number two. Right. They just cut like five people from the pilot once they went to series. Mad Men was one of those shows that there's, you can, it's actually very subtle in Mad Men, but you can definitely notice there's difference between the pilot and then once they picked up into episode two, they got a new set dressing yeah. and they updated uh, parts of the office and you're like, hmm. But usually most people don't notice those inside tricks. But you just tell that there's so much more money. I was on a desk for when a pilot was being made, but then the execs didn't like two of the B characters, so they had them completely recast, but then they had to go back and reshoot their scenes for the pilot. And it's just interesting how much happens between when a pilot shot, and those pilots are shot on such shoestring budgets. Yep. Oh, Michael Scott's hair in the office yes! used to be slicked back. And he and he has hair plugs. Like they they make it look like the way they slick his hair back. They make it look like he has hair plugs. But then I guess they kind of redid his character to make him more likable. I guess going forward once they picked him up, because now Michael, uh, what's his name? Um, Steve Carell actually has a pretty nice head of hair. He does. And so I, I always found it interesting how they did that. So yeah, they made it look like hair plugs. So anyway, I agree. So it's always interesting. So. What has been your overall take on the show so far that, uh, now that you're in, in about three seasons? My, my overall take is that it is a very good show, obviously. The thing that is very weird is that it, ha it didn't take place all that long ago. It ran from 2004 to 2007. We are talking about... You know, 15 years ago. Sir, we are living in like dog years now, though. You realize that 2004 feels like 25, 30 years ago. And that was the thing that blew me away. There's an episode that takes place in 2006, and it's called Versatile Toppings. And it is essentially Veronica Mars has to solve the case of somebody who's blackmailing students to not expose them as LGBTQ people. Can you back up? What is the show actually about though, Veronica Mars, before you kind of dive into that, because I'm familiar with it. But. To, to give a quick summation, Veronica Mars is the story about a 
high school girl whose dad used to be sheriff of the town and then was fired from the police force for a mishandling, quote unquote, a crime and then started his own detective agency in Neptune, California, which is roughly like Orange County. Suburban beach town exactly. type of thing in California. And so he runs his own detective agency um, called the Mars Detective Agency. Veronica Mars is his daughter and secretary, and she also solves mysteries. Now more in her, in the high school, does she, more around her peers? She does even, even like the big stuff. Like he, he tries to protect her from it and be like, oh, this case is a little too dangerous for you. But she still gets involved and she's very smart. She's very competent. It's a, it's a fun show. Then Nancy drew for 2004, as I'm sure it was pitched at. So anyway, this, episode versatile toppings aired in 2006 and the whole premise of it was a student comes to veronica mars and says i need you to help find out who is blackmailing these kids who he just refers to as gay kids but would be as we would refer to as lgbtq plus now because somebody is saying either pay five thousand dollars or we're going to expose them to the school Now, throughout the episode, you have such casual homophobic stuff that hits the ear so hard and wrong now, but didn't really seem to do that back in the day. And when these kids are revealed as being, you know, LGBTQ, they're devastated. And like people are shocked that there would be kids like that in their school. And there's like this... You know, the moment where the whole class goes, what? That, and you're just like, it's so dated. So it does not age well. Well, now here's the thing. I won't say it doesn't age well. I will say that it just shows how far we've come in the past, you know, 15 years. There is actually an episode where a kid is looking for his dad. And his mom said that his dad is dead. And then it actually turns up or turns out after this investigation that essentially Veronica is able to find his dad and his dad is has a transition to a woman. And she comes up to the kid's video store every weekend to like get this kid's recommendation on movies because he works at a, at a video store because that was a thing back when Veronica Mars. <laughs> People stores. went to video stores. We did not have the Netflixification of the world at that point yet. Once the whole mystery is solved, the kid reacts very poorly to the fact that she is his father. He gets very angry, and I I get that they're trying to prepare. Like there, there's a lot of complicated emotions that have to be happening at that moment. The kid leaves, and Veronica picks him up and is driving him back to. Neptune, California. And she goes, you know, it's 90 miles from here to San Diego. And he goes, yeah, so? And he's like, your dad would drive 90 miles every week to talk to you for five minutes just so that they could be a part of your life. And I was like, that's something that aged really well for the show and is very woke and is very progressive and is very much a way that I think the show was ahead of its time. But there's other ways that the show is just 
a product of living in 2004 to 2007 and just watching it now, you can just see how far we've come as a society. And I, it, it was one of those things that actually like made me feel good and just- well, At least we're not living in that era still. Yeah, like, and that was only like 15 years ago. Yeah. We've progressed and we're not perfect and things need to get better in a lot of fronts. You know, even my daughter, who is nine, was watching it with us. And there was a lot of things that she was like, whoa, that was rough. And I'm like, I'm glad you think that was rough because you're someone living in 2020 without any knowledge of what 2004 was like. That hits you that way. And that's a good thing. So that hopefully in another 15 years, the shows that are on air now making certain comments or quips about certain types of people or certain areas of life will be looked upon as dated. And thank God we're not thinking that way anymore. It's a good point too of just any show that you watch is still a product of its time. And even if it, it does aim to be progressive or forward thinking, there's only so much of that can happen because you're still living in the moment all the time and you're working within the framework and constructs of what's socially acceptable and understood. But the fact that you would have a network that would okay uh, scripts like that and be able to talk about stuff, I thought was actually really good. And I appreciate that. Very cool. And how, how, was, uh, how was Kristen Bell in the show? Because that was kind of her star turn. Kristen Bell is pretty much amazing. And there's a, I can't, I actually don't want to talk about it. I know that it's a spoiler from like 15 years ago, but like anybody who does like listen to this and be like, oh, I should give Veronica Mars a chance, like my co-host here. I think that, I don't want to spoil something, but there is a scene where two people are in peril and it's Kristen Bell and it is another character. Kristen Bell makes me believe that she could die at any second. And I'm like, holy crap, this, this is really like heart wrenching. Mm -hmm. And the other character, I'm like, nice acting. <laughs> You're really going for it. And that to me was the moment that I realized like there's there's a reason that some people who came out of that show came out of it and like had much longer careers that she's legitimately very good. I uh, remember back in the day when the show came out, I heard a lot about it. It was kind of a cult favorite, but even a little bit above cult favorite though, because like a lot of people did watch it within the CW realm of viewership. But I, it was a show that was known about and kind of on uh, a lower end of the cultural zeitgeist a bit. Right. Uh, and it was pretty much for her performance, though. That's what everybody would always talk about is Kristen Bell in the show as Veronica Mars. Um, and then it was so popular, though, as far as like really rabid fans, is that even after it left the air, it came back years later as a Hulu special, right? For one a one-off season. Yeah, they did a... Yep, they did a... No, they just did a movie. Was it a movie? Okay. Uh, yeah. But it just showed the staying power of the show because I think it was like seven years later. I think it was maybe in 2014 or 2015 yeah, when that I think, came out. Yeah, I think you're right. It's very interesting because another one of my favorite actresses recently is Kristen Ritter because I loved her in Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. This is one of her first roles in Veronica Marsh. She has a, oh, I didn't a know she small in. arc. And she's not great. You can tell that it's a young actor mm -hmm. like learning the 
craft good enough to be on television for sure not like a standout performance not a seasoned actor and yeah by the time it's like don't trust to be in apartment 23 i'm like holy crap that is like a good actor so that's kind of cool because you're almost then retroactively seeing her progression from being a fresh green actor on a television show to when she was kind of the starring or you know the uh, titular yeah. character really kind of honing in and knowing herself and, and carrying herself the way she wants to. Right. And someone who like, obviously I, I think her star should be much higher. I think she's a phenomenal actress, but seeing that like, that isn't something that is just innate and happens like that. Somebody who actually is putting in work and gets better. You can tell that they're putting in work and getting better because the first performance is like, okay, you know, that's fine. That's completely possible for a television performance until the point where, like, she's Jessica Jones. You know what I mean? Like, she's good. She can carry some of this, like, emotional depth. She has improved enough that she can, yeah, that's exactly it. Now she can carry a show and a character. Right. And that's work. And that's work that this person did to be better. And that's awesome. And it's awesome to see that. I agree 100%. And that's, it goes back a little bit to what we talked about in a previous episode of just uh, people working on their craft and getting better. And when you can follow their career a bit and see that happening and how much work it really does take. This isn't just, oh, you just show up and then all of a sudden you have your own TV show. Like it takes a lot of dedication to it. But it's also cool going back and watching these older shows, especially with these streaming services, having these back catalogs and hearing a show that you always heard about and always were interested in and then finally being able to take the plunge and then you get to have all these retrospective uh you know ideas and commentary and and have it but also with the idea understanding of the arc or filling in the gaps between when this show was made and the present day of like be it a writer or the actor or the producers of these shows that you're watching so it is always interesting to have that going into it and watching these older shows like that so that's cool sure so after that giant discussion, what have you been watching? <laughs> it's all good. Um, we'll see if we can keep this one short because uh, it can definitely spiral because, man, could we really both get into it? So, all right. So I, I, I just want to first mention I watched uh, Senna, the documentary about the Formula One driver, Anton Senna. How good is that? It was, it was yeah. really good. I really did enjoy it. Um, I... It wasn't honestly as engaging as I as like the Formula One series from some of the same producers, but man, it, but it's good. And you know what? It really did just feed my appetite for more Formula One. And I got more history of it, though. That was the most exciting part was just getting an understanding of the, the back history now of Formula One. And honestly, it's a sad story, though, in the very end, because, man, that guy, I, I can see where he probably would have went and won more uh, championships and how probably good chance that could have went down as the greatest driver of all time. Some people still think that, but anyway, so it was very good though. And it was just very sad in the very end of uh, the whole reason kind of the documentary got made. He's the inspiration though, of many, many of the current drivers uh, out on the course today. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, there's, there's so many like, like theories about what happened and everything and whether he passed away on the racetrack or not. And I had only known a little bit about Formula One. I had mu known much more about like IndyCar and NASCAR mm -hmm. racing. And then when I watched that documentary, it was recommended to me. And I was like, whoa, this guy was 
something special. Yeah, he, he's one of those guys with the that it factor that's just the super driven and focused, no pun intended. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it was good. It was also interesting just the amount of footage they had, though, from him, obviously the race stuff, but then just all this home video that was taken. So you really actually could... They, they, I don't even think there was a narrator. They just walked you through the whole thing. So it was really well done. Yeah, as far as I remember, I don't think there was. But you did you did actually get me watching the Formula One series, and I'm in the uh, tail end of season two now. Oh. And, oh, my gosh. I am so, like... There's so many emotions I have towards these drivers <laughs> yeah, now. I like there's I'm I'm like twisted up about the Ferrari team. Yep. I'm like twisted up about the Renault team. Yep. Yep. I'm like I love Daniel Averson, but then I don't like that he's on Renault. I don't like Renault, but I like him and I wish he was on a different team right? and I was so mad when he went. Oh, but then yeah, so you're like I want him to do good, but then I also don't want Renault to do well and I'm having a lot of those kind of I had I yes oh I'm so glad you're feeling the same way that's I like hate Red Bull for some reason and the kid who's driving for Red Bull is like perfectly fine he's a he's a perfectly fine kid he just happened to be the other person to the person I really yeah. liked yeah that's all and then like they kick the other kid off yeah and then he's doing well <laughs> and i'm like i'm really rooting for him and i'm like why do i hate red bull so but much? then i like the new kid on the red bull team too because of his backstory that you know how he he got out of racing because he had some personal problems that with an accident oh, and stuff and yeah. it's just like crazy and then you're like but you want him to do well too and those two were going head it, it, it was wild and i'm like i can't believe this is happening but isn't it interesting how they changed kind of the storytelling structure, though, between season one and season two, though? Yes, and it, that I, was very interesting. And, and it, they pulled it off uh, very well, which is a hard thing to do. So, all right, well, I'm glad you're liking it. Uh, I just started getting into the Formula One races for real that have just started back up, and I am hooked. It is so exciting, even just watching in real time. I'm, I'm, I'm rooting out loud in my house. Where are you watching ESPN. these? Okay. Continuing on my Formula One craze, so we'll see what else I can find out there. I think there's more stuff on Netflix. Anyway, the main thing I wanted to get into and talk about for my segment on what I've been watching was, this is The Watchmen. I watched The Watchmen, the movie. Uh, This is a rewatch of The Watchmen. I've seen it before when it first came out in theaters, and I've seen it once or twice at home, so this is definitely a rewatch. So the reason I decided to rewatch it is it started with the TV series that came out last October, and then I started watching, and I was like, I want to read the comic book though first. I want to read the graphic novel before I actually watch the series because the series is more actually based off of the graphic novel. Borrowed it from you, read the graphic novel, really loved it. It's fantastic as everybody says mm-hmm. it is. But then I just was like, let me rewatch the movie. It'll get me in the mood for the Watchmen, the TV show. So anyway, I did that and I finally rewatched it. I gotta say, I love this movie. I absolutely 100% adore Watchmen the movie by Zack Schneider, our, our very favorite. Even after reading the book? Yes. Where I, I do want to talk about what is the discrepancy between fans of the comic and the final movie because I read the comic before I watched rewatched the movie. I think the movie is a very good representation of the, of the comic and I think it, it hits on the tone and the style of the comic very well as far as changing over from a written drawn medium to a movement visual medium. And I I just thought all the choices that they made to convey feelings that were from the comic and they just nailed a lot of it. There was a lot of the stop motion capture, a lot of slow-mo, 
a lot of interesting stylistic shots that mimic a comic book but aren't doing the Ang Lee Hulk thing where you're just actually putting comic book cells flash flooring all over the screen and stuff like that. And I thought that Zack Snyder did a lot of this work that really tried to do that point is to evoke the feeling of what the comics were going for. I will 100% agree with you that I think style-wise and tone-wise, I think the Watchmen movie does represent the book very well. I, I think he, he does do a nice job. And I will also say that his ending is much better than the ending that's in the graphic novel. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm The one that they put in the movie, I think, is a much better ending. Oh, interesting. I thought that was going to be one of the big gripes between comic book fans and the movie fans. No. Spoiler warning. Okay. The calamari is not... I, I didn't think this was... That was great. I, I was aware of the general ending that something happened with the squid. So I was familiar with this and then in the movie it didn't. And not knowing, reading the actual comic before seeing the movie, I was like, well, whatever happens with a squid, I, that sounds dumb. And the way this movie ended to me was amazing. Part of the thing for me though, is that I don't understand necessarily the, the frustration with the movies because it's almost a paint by number walkthrough of the comic though, sans certain aspects of side stories that were going on in the comic, I didn't see much discrepancy. And that is almost amazing how much of the original storylines they really fit in there. Almost some of them were scene by scene, like a lot of the whole movie was scene by scene in the comic. Well, I think the big difference for me and the thing that actually put me off the movie was that essentially they killed the initial reason that Rorschach would have looked into the comedian's death in that when the comedian gets thrown out of the window he's like wait a minute somebody with enormous amount of power was able to do this and the only person we know with an enormous amount of power is Dr. Manhattan mm -hmm. other than that nobody is able to throw somebody out of a window of a high rise like this Somebody is coming after us because we're the next big threat. Okay. And they have a superpower. Now, when that scene between the comedian and the one who kills him happens, the two of them are punching through like granite countertops, kicking themselves through walls. Right. And it's like this superhero fight that lets off the tone of the movie that completely undercuts what the Watchmen are. And except for Dr. Manhattan, all these people are just people who essentially got good at fighting people because they fought people every night. And there were people who were fighting people every night who made mistakes, like wearing a cape. The idea that you had to have that trial and error, that you... They were trying to ground this in such a real way that to have the first fight scene be like people are punching through stone was like, what are we doing? If the comedian can punch through stone and the guy who kills him can punch through stone and Mila Ackerman can punch through stone and Rorschach can like bend bars or whatever he does, like then none of this makes any sense because there was no reason to start the film to begin with. For example, 
I am a big fan of the Jack Reacher series of books by Lee Child. I like them, but one of the main conceits of it is Jack Reacher is six foot five. And he often gets picked out and brought into situations because it's like, well, there's a huge dude who's running around <laughs> this thing. He has to be involved. Now, this isn't the exact same thing because Tom Cruise can look bigger on screen. I love Tom Cruise as an actor and I think he's super charismatic and I don't want to diminish that his performance as Jack Reacher at all. But when you have somebody that's that short being Jack Reacher, you miss part of the reason that he gets pulled into a lot of these weird situations. It's It undercuts the whole thing. And that was my problem with Watchmen is that you undercut what was special about it by making us feel that they're superheroes and they're not. Well, now, do you think that construct of this semi-superhero carried out throughout the entire film or did they just kind of do this splashy opening scene? No, I think it carried throughout the entire film. I think even when you, it undercut every single character. Like, cause didn't you think that, uh, what's his face? Um, not Archimedes, the guy who has the flying night owl. owl. Yeah, night owl. Night owl. You said it only five times, so I couldn't pick up on it. <laughs> but like, didn't you feel like he had some sort of super intelligence to like be doing all this stuff? Like, you didn't feel like he was a normal dude who was doing this. But then when you like read the book, you're like, oh shit. I see. I I honestly I I kind of did because what I watched the movie first. I didn't read the comic, and I got I kind of got what it was going for. Is that it might have straddled a little bit more in the happy medium of it, where I, I got the idea that these weren't true superheroes. We weren't dealing in a world of Superman and Batman. These were just kind of above average regular people who got into this hero fighting kind of outfit and they kind of just grew their ways of being able to do things because they actually focused on it rather than i never thought any of them really had superpowers except dr manhattan i just thought maybe like the comedian had extra human strength it wasn't superhuman strength but it was this weird kind of gray area between being a full-on superhero and just being a regular joe schmo but you you got that, that he was still grounded in a sense of reality that was where my feeling of watching the movie the first time around so that when I read the comic, I was like, yeah, okay, this is all the same things I've been through because yeah, I get it. These are more or less just regular people fighting crime. It had a little bit of a elevated sense of who these people were and in their, in their abilities. Uh, I won't say it didn't have none, but I don't think it was completely this full on superherification of them. I very much felt it was, and I kind of had a feeling that somebody was going to fly at some point. Like, someone's just going to, like, launch off the ground and fly. But, like, even in the sh in the comic, though, I mean, when they break him out of prison, I mean, the <laughs> Rorschach just takes on, like, 20 dudes, and the Night Owl and uh, Silk Spectre just come in and, you know, bust them out by the same thing, beating up a whole bunch of dudes along the way. But there's such attention to the fact that I don't think he's actually going to be able to do that. Rorschach is crazy. And while he can say that one of the most amazing lines in all of literature, now you're locked in here with us. No, now you're all locked in here with me. I'm like, I don't know if this guy is literally going to just commit suicide 
and just be like, I don't care. I'll go out swinging. Like, I don't care how many people I hurt to get to justice or how it hurts me to get to justice. I'm going to just keep swinging until I can't anymore and the fight is done. And I felt like that wasn't the feeling I had when I was watching the movie. The tone for me of that movie was never that these people were just kind of like average people or like above average people doing a thing. It very much felt like these were superheroes who weren't like quite as super. Okay. So is that is that like the main friction between big comic fans and the That that's the main thing. And like any of the other stuff that I have is probably nitpicky and not like worth delving into. Okay, so that's just being a fan of the comic and then just you can find small things. Obviously, a translating to a film from a, a graphic novel like this, like any book to film, you're, you're going to lose aspects of the original source content. So, But that's what I'm so surprised about the film is how much though they still squeeze in there, got in a relative time frame, and still pulled off, I thought, a feeling of what the comic was going for. And also the theme, like the final theme, like... I got to tell you, I was blown away by the final ending and the whole master plan. It's probably the greatest supervillain, superhero plan. And it really does just kind of undercut almost anything that comes after it. It really is end all be all of like bad guy plan because it really, you're like, holy shit. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. I think we can both agree on though that the soundtrack and the use of pop culture songs in this movie is bar none. Some of the best use of music ever in a movie. The blowing in the wind opening credit scene is really great, but extra great if you've read the graphic novel because you see all the stuff that they're cramming in to that song and the history of the superheroes. That was like three single-spaced pages of writing that they did in like one song. And I think that was... What I do want to reiterate is like I don't... 100% disavow the movie or think that it's terrible or think that it shouldn't be watched or anything like that. There are really good parts in the movie and I think they did a really good job. I just have a big beef with certain things and I think that's a fair criticism to have. And I'm not saying it's not because I watched the movie first and I do wonder if I had it on the inverse of reading the comic first before watching the film if I would have had the same feeling. All right, well, let's move on. That was a great conversation. Uh, Let's get into some current event topics. And this one, we wanted to jump into the idea that there has been a proliferation of new series being pitched to all kinds of networks that focus around the the pandemic, the social distancing, the Zoom chatting that we're all doing <laughs> that started off with, oh, maybe this will be a few weeks, so maybe this will be like a month or two, and now it's turning into being, this might honestly be almost all of 2020 for a large majority of the population. And with that come the copycat clones of the idea of what we're living through right now. Like love in the time of Corona. That name just in general, I'm just like, uh, okay. Yes, that one is coming to free form. The love in time of Corona. There is also heading to Netflix called Social Distance. There is also another show in the works from uh, Office producers Ben Silverman and Paul Liberstein. They have a remote workplace comedy series that they are cooking up and Among others, there's a few others out there too. I think there's a movie or two that's also being 
shot in the works or at least being pitched around town. I think part of the reason we, we want to bring this up is because it's kind of a double-edged sword the way we see it where we're happy things are getting made, but then there's also a frustration with the type of stories that might come out of this and it might get a little exhaustive because there's so many maybe of the same ones, but that remains to be seen. So that's why I just was curious about what your take was on this. I think it's a good thing because people are working and I really do very, very, very much want the industry to get working again so that our friends can be working again so that everybody is like making a living again. It is very hard to do stuff at a distance level. Um, As an editor, like I know the people who run our post department who are EPs of shows are just scrambling to like keep the wheels on a lot of these trains because there's a lot that you know people need in order to do their job and especially post-production while we can isolate better than most departments it is something that you know people are it's a logistical nightmare and i know you know that it's a logistical nightmare to to do all this stuff so I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad that people are, are finding a way to do this. And I think comedies now are the easiest place besides animation to start people interacting because physical comedy hasn't been a thing other than like a sprinkling of seasoning on top of for a long time. And I think mostly you have dialogue-driven comedy is a bread and butter. So having stuff where you're going to basically have people talking on a screen to each other is probably going to work pretty well. I just think the hardest thing is going to be is trying to keep it interesting. How are you going to have people? I mean, you're going to have to have different conversations where people are having like side conversations, but you can't do that all in like a zoom call. I agree with you totally on that, that it is great that things are moving along because it is. Everybody needs a pipeline. Everything needs to kind of keep moving along as best they can. And See, there's only so many cool reruns thing. that you can do of a show or just kind of chopping up. I, I have been finding kind of that them the, the more we like do this, so the do more, more bits we this have. This is for really the only reality that we can very difficult to choose for the moment is doing these socially distance produced shows, which means the content itself is in the realm of social distance. It will be interesting, and I think you you hit the nail on the head of how are you going to keep this interesting, though, because there's going to be a lot of the sameness, it feels like, possibly, as far as the content goes. So how do you make it unique? How do you make it original? You know, this is really, like, the first time that I remember that, like, you have cliches that are already cliche before the stuff has even started to be made. Every like sketch comedy group that I know has done some sort of posting on Facebook about all low hanging fruit of Zoom calls, like the person who's secretly drinking, the person who doesn't know how to work the camera and is too close. The one who stands up without pants on, the one who takes the computer into the bathroom. Exactly, you know, <laughs> right. The like the affair of like the person walking across in the background, the, you know, the person yelling at their kids, you know, and you find out that they're like not a great person. There's so many cliches that have been burned before this is even going to hit network. 
So you're already in a place where you have to make something original off of stuff that we already know. Yeah, that's so that's so true. And that, I think that you nailed that on the head there. That's just such an interesting perspective, though, of just what you're looking to create has already kind of gone through the steps of people seeing it so often that it's gone through the steps of becoming a cliche and a trope and already old news and that joke's not funny anymore. Like we've done that already in a, such a small time frame of just a few months over and over again on YouTube. We go back to you, we're, our creator conversation at the top. It's like, that's what is also part of the mediums now is that this stuff can get turned around and churned out real quickly. And you're not doing anything different than what YouTube, YouTube creators are already doing as a job. This is what they do. They take social commentary and turn it around and prepackage it right. real quickly within a matter of days or weeks. And this has already been done. So what are you going to do on network television, which has a much longer lead time up to creating these things, fleshing out these ideas? Like what exactly is going to be unique about that? And I think the thing that's going to have to happen now with any of these shows is that we we're now in the age of like, you really do have to say something. If you're going to do a comedy about social distancing, you really have to have like a strong commentary on my what it means to not be together as people and what it means to just interact as ideas or whatever like your take on it and not that art from before now or any of the like visual mediums didn't have to do that and didn't have to have a strong take and that you can't go back through the best of sitcoms and see that they did have a take on things but what i'm saying is it's like it's so ultra important now that it would be very hard to be a more irreverent comedy about workplace stuff. Like even when you go back and watch The Office, mm -hmm. The Office was dealing with a lot of like racial stuff with a lot of like social norms and how people conform to social norms and how they shouldn't and what people want to say. And with Michael Scott being the tip of the spear that just kind of like pokes into all that things and people are like cringing at what he was doing, but had a very strong point of view. We get that things are weird now. We get that everybody's trying to find a new reality and we're doing that. And I think if you don't have that level of stuff, you're, you're not going to be able to just do the old office comedy. You know, like you can't do the Mary Tyler Moore show now just online. Like you have to do the office 2.0. It has to fit the medium and, and the structure of which the way you're telling the show. And, and, and we talked again, we kind of referenced this earlier, just the moment that you're living in now, it's going to have to reflect that at some point. And it may not uh, date well or age well in the future, but at this current moment, you kind of have to live within what you were, your, the construct of current society and it's very constrained at this point but i am a believer in that idea though that constraint unleashes creativity that wasn't there before or it was there but it wasn't Absolutely. pushed to the edge before so that's my hope out of it more positive outlook on it but i do on the flip side have frustrations with it where this it seems just repetitive and you already touched on this already and it's it is a low-hanging fruit. Just the general concept of it is already low-hanging, and it, and that's just to see all these coming out. It's like, really, this is this is all we got. Like, I just feel like everybody can do better necessarily than this. I'm then trying to just give them all the benefit of the doubt. They are working in tougher situations where work within a certain confines and a construct. So that's what they're doing. My worry is that after we get out of all this, at whatever point in the future that is. 
that then we're still going to see all this kind of retrospective films being made about like, oh, and these two couple, these two people, these roommates were stuck in quarantine and they really didn't like each other, but then they ended up falling in love with each other kind of movie. Like I'm waiting for that to be ha- to be made. And I'm just like cringing at the idea of when it's going to happen. And that totally will be a movie. <laughs> It will be, and it's going to be starring Kathleen Heigl and Gerard Butler, like for the older version, and it's going to... Where Josh Dumel will come out of retirement, and it'll be them again. Yeah, Josh Dumel will come out of retirement. Or it's going to be, you know, Cheyenne Woodley, and like... Miles Teller will go back to his roots. Right, Miles Teller and Cheyenne Woodley. That'll be the like there. Well, I guess it first has to become a YA novel so that then it can be made into a movie. I think Cheyenne Woodley only does things that have to be YA novels first. She's like, I can only read the source material <laughs> in novel form. I know my co-host is definitely going to dig those movies, though. I know he loves a good rom-com, so. All right, quick pause. I did watch Last Christmas the other day because I was home by myself and I know I shouldn't have to subject my wife to rom-coms as much as I love them and it was pretty good. Which one is Last Christmas? I mean honestly there's so many movies that have the word It's the one it's the one with Amelia Clark and she uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's sort of like this bohemian um, and then it's the crap and this guy is like Henry Golding, Henry Golding, the, the, it's Amelia Clark and Henry Golding. They do a f- great job together. They're very cute together and it's a great rom-com. It goes exactly where you think it will go and it is nice and there is love. I mean, can it technically be called a rom-com if it doesn't go exactly where you think it's going to go? Possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's one of the checklist check marks that like in order to be de- qualified as a rom comic has to go where you expect it to go. Exactly. But let's end it on a positive note. I'm going to give these all these shows a benefit of the doubt. Uh, I, I know there's going to be more of them coming down the line. I think after, like I said, quarantine, normal life uh, comes back or whatever normal is after we get back to everybody out in the working world again. I, I do think there's going to be a lot of retrospectives, which I won't be as excited about. And I'm not that I'm excited about these ones now, but I am willing to check them out and give them benefit of the doubt because they're trying something new. It's something new. And I should always be excited when when people, producers, creators are, are, are pushing themselves into a different uh, different storytelling medium. Sure. I'm there. I'm there. Let's move on into our main topic of the day. And Tony, I think I'll let you kind of tee this one up. Uh, you were thinking about this, and I think this came out of your uh, binge watching of Veronica Mars. So it did come out of my binge watching of Veronica Mars. So what was what came out of your what kind of thoughts came out of binge watching Veronica Mars? And it's it's basically it's like my wife and I try and find shows that we can watch together um, that we both like. She very much likes period dramas. Um, she's very much the Downton Abbey fan. I I like that. A little bit, but she, anything that's like period and like people suffering, like she'll watch. And then she likes comedies. And then I also like comedies, but she doesn't like rom-coms as much as I do. We both like dance movies, so we'll watch those together. So we, we try and find shows. So we've watched a lot of like short things, but then Veronica Mars, we've both gone into and we're like, oh, this is great. We can keep watching it. And there's 22 episodes a season. 
So we have, over the four seasons, almost 100 episodes to go through, which are an hour long. Oh, so you guys are liking this because you actually have like something that's going to take a while for you both to be able to say, hey, let's go watch this this show instead of having to find a new one every couple 13 episodes or something. Exactly. That is the perfect summation of my long-ass ramble. Yes. So we now have settled in on a show that we can watch at like one or two a day and this is going to take us the rest of the pandemic (laughs) hopefully so all that being preamble to say it's interesting how different shows are now because now it's like eight to ten episodes is the norm for a season and then it used to be 22 like if you didn't do 22 you weren't on network like you were some sort of specialty series so I just wanted, or I had brought up to you, just the pros and cons of like, what do you think was better when people had to deliver 22 episodes a season or when people had to do 10? And if there was a, a benefit mm-hmm. to one over the other, maybe in different genres, maybe as whatever. When you brought this topic up, I was so happy to talk about it because I think this is a evergreen topic for anybody who likes to watch television and have this discussion, this dichotomy of what shows kind of used to be and what shows have been for about the past 10 plus years. I mean, you really go back to Sopranos when they started this new format almost that obviously Sopranos kind of started this whole new reinvention of TV as far as limited series or limited season runs. And then everybody kind of riffed off of that because I think they were 13 episodes uh, seasons to begin with and then you know Mad Men's were the same they were about 13 for their first couple seasons and then Breaking Bad and wherever it was it started with HBO like they were the ones ordering these like small more like novels on television like you're really diving deep with like a really honed in plot line you know you can now easier to see it in retrospect see this sort of evolution of it so you're right on broadcast television that was basically the mainstay for decades and decades and it was you're generally going anywhere between 20 and 24 episodes be it you're a half hour comedy or you're an hour long drama both of them had to come up with that many episodes a season and that was just the norm and that was one of the pinnacles of like a writing career is being on one of these shows. Cause if it ran for a couple of seasons, I mean, you're working practically the full year, if not three quarters of the year in a writer's room coming up with all these episodes. And then they're shooting all these episodes. Your, your downtime is only off oh, yeah. for maybe a month or two where once those HBO shows started to hit the scene and there were only about 13 episodes a season that really cut you down. I mean, you're only working maybe half a year at most if you're working on one of these shows because. Right. And there was a weird thing where there was like a, they were doing split seasons where they would like call it like all like season one. It was two 10 season episodes that took place over two years. And that became a huge like writer's guild thing thing i mean we don't even have to go into that yeah that came later on that was because sopranos did that walking dead i remember did that yeah they had like man man had season seven part one and part two they were still aired as in two consecutive years but they were all shot under the season seven banner so financially speaking that means they got to pay all those people on the rate of season seven instead of having a season eight and bumping them up for that final Thing. So yes, that's a whole other, that was something that evolved as well as these cable series came along. So anyway, so it went from 22 to then 13. And then 
even as this progressed along, it's all of a sudden you started seeing Creep Town even further where it went down to 10. I think True Detective was only 10 episodes. Then now you're even seeing even more in these uh, streaming series that yeah. are some are even eight, as you alluded to, which is kind of crazy. And some now you even have limited series that are maybe like four or six episodes. And it's just pretty wild. Uh, and we we've talked about this before. Yeah. Uh, Game of Thrones, their final season, they cut it down to, I think, six episodes, but then they extended each episode was more to an hour to hour and a half but again it was just really cutting down on the amount of episodes and we talked about that we thought that was an issue with the final season where they should have actually had more episodes and the stories would have been better sure and then i don't know if you watch sherlock um out of the bbc they did six hour and a half long episodes i believe if i remember correctly Maybe four or six. That's worth watching. Uh, and I've heard it's really great. The whole point we're just getting at, it's been this evolution since the kind of early aughts with The Sopranos and other HBO shows. And then that became the standard model was 13. And that became kind of, it settled in. But then even from there, it continued to kind of creep down, which was interesting. And the reason that's interesting is because then you have these discussions. Some of them we already touched on. Other ones are have to do with the story. Is it better to have it stretched out over 22 episodes and you really get to flesh it out more or is it better to really just be super, super tight and just get to the exact meat of what the purpose of the story is and not have this extra sort of filler character development maybe or extra storylines that you just have to kind of conjure up to fill out this this episode order because these episode orders on broadcast aren't fit around the story. The story has to fit around the order because they have to fill out months worth of programming from say september all the way through may yeah these larger generalized audiences that networks uh broadcast networks you know are pushing out to because they have ad sponsors that are bigger broadband sponsors that type of thing well it's interesting that you bring up the ad stuff because that is one of the things that i think made the 22 episode seasons so interesting is that you did have to have sweeps week essentially like where you were doing the like heavy advertising and then all your numbers coming in and that would be twice a year and that means that your show that was doing whatever had to do like some stunt casting episode it's like the harlem globetrotters had to show up on scooby-doo or they whatever bruce willis is going to be jennifer aniston's girlfriend for an episode right exactly you know so you had to do all that stuff and then now, when it comes into the sweeps, they can literally just start a new season of something that they've already hyped. So you're able to sell like a new thing instead of it being like, oh, well, you got to get on the Friends bandwagon because like if you don't get that 30 second, you know, ad spot on Friends, whatever, you can be like, look, we have a new series from, you know, the creator of this and that and the other thing. And you can just roll that out. Yeah. So then let's just maybe take each perspective and just kind of run through what you were saying, like the pros and cons. So like if you're looking at the long season, okay. I'd say just some of the good things were that they last half a year for the viewing audience. Like you, you know what you're going to be watching for the next several months. Yes. And you know it'll be there every week. From the time school starts, when you have the your end of your summer break, you only get one week and then the new show start and then they end like two weeks before you're off for the summer. Exactly. You knew exactly the cadence and you knew where it was going to be. It was like a warm, comforting blank. Yeah. You know, and then I guess from that, you would get this weekly connection with characters. So you just kind of knew and it did lend itself more to 
you could do both more episodic television or serialized television, but it did kind of shy a little more to episodic, even the dramas where the characters had the same aspects to them and parts of who they were. And they brought that though, but it was a new story kind of every week, the like NYPD blue, you know, like it. Now they might've had some underlying B, C, D stories that kind of were a semi-connective tissue, but they weren't the main focus of the show. It was more about, well, what's the new crime this week and what are they dealing with? And then they have some home stuff they're dealing with that influences how they're reacting to what's happening this week in this case, but they weren't the main driving factor of the show. Yeah, you always had like the monster of the week. And then what I always noticed happening, even as a kid, I noticed that you would the first part of the episode would start set up the monster of the week. Then you would be dealing with the monster of the week the whole time. And then like the last two scenes or last one scene would progress an overall arc for the whole thing. And that would be it. You would get like the last like 10 minutes would be like, then Dennis Franz comes in and like realizes his wife is cheating on him. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's the thing that's also happening after he caught that, like, double homicide. But then he shows his butt on TV, so they could, for sweeps, for sweeps, they show his butt. and Right, and then he shows his butt for sweeps. You have to show the Dennis Franz butt for sweeps. Yeah, and I, I think because of the extended run and the amount of episodes, it does in a sense, put them in a box where it forces the producers and the creators to really push their creative bounds and come up with interesting stories or explore the characters a bit more. And you have more of that room to do that. So there's, you can also in serialized ways show different episodes that, or even episodically show episodes that explore a different aspect of the character. And it's kind of a one-off where you might dive into a topic that's commonly seen on a show, but then you kind of can get back to your normally scheduled program. But for better or for worse, sometimes they're just like, this is crazy and you're just really trying to stretch something that's nothing, or they stretch their creative uh, instincts and really did show something cool and different. So there is that part of it. There was always, I loved the bottle episodes were always my favorite, where like someone gets trapped in a freezer and it's just these two characters talking to each other for like, someone gets trapped in an elevator. Or that or the clip show, which would have to happen like once a, like a season where everybody's like sitting around with like a vague. I remember it happening on the Golden Girls a bunch. Oh, I remember that one on The Office. That was a common that they did, they did that like two or three times on The Office's run. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot those. Where it's like, okay, and now we're gonna go back and like tell these stories. It's like the characters in around is like, hey, remember when that happened? Yeah. Well, you see, that fit better in a pre-binge world because I just binged The Office recently, say within the past year, and I saw that episode. I'm like, we ended up just skipping it because we're like, okay, we've like, we've we've literally seen those episode those pieces probably two weeks ago and it's like that's not fun reminiscence anymore it's just like i don't want to watch what i just recapping i i don't need a recap episode i'm good i like those i always thought those are fun but yeah i think now that you don't have like a traditional delivery schedule you don't you don't have to worry about stuff like that anymore you don't have to do necessarily bottle episodes and you don't necessarily have to do clip shows but i would love somebody did and i forget what show it was someone did a real fun take on the clip show where it was all clips of things that had never happened before in the show and they were all sitting around being like i want to say it was always sunny 
But it was like, hey, remember when this happened? And it was like some new scene that had never happened before. And I was like, that's a really fun take. <laughs> that's Yeah. So what do you think? Do you have any other parts that you think were, were like, what were some pros about having a longer episode runs? No, I think I, I think we're pretty much on the same thing. Like it was always, those are the, the pros. It, it was great. And the only thing that to just expand yeah. upon the bottle episode is like there was times where episodes would get really weird. Where, like, you have to get a weird guest star in there for a little bit, you know? There's, talking about The Office, like, there was this run where Idris Elba takes over The Office for, like, literally, for I think, like, three episodes or maybe four episodes. It's not very long. Well, it's funny as I thought it was a longer run that he was on. And then when I did the rewatch that I talked about, it was, you're right. I was like, oh, he's on it much shorter than I remember him being on it for. Okay. I, I, I can't remember. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I just remember that that was the thing. And it felt like very like stunt casting and he's there and he's trying yeah. to like restructure the company. He's very an accountant type of dude who like, and I, the only other thing I remember about that whole run is they all try and play soccer at one point and like Jim pretends that he's like really good at soccer and then ducks and someone gets like their nose broken i think it was meredith <laughs> was it <laughs> she always had the worst stuff happened to her. but anyway like i was like that type of stuff doesn't happen with like a 10 episode run like you're not gonna be like okay we're gonna take the first three episodes four episodes of the season we're gonna dedicate it to this like idris alba character and michael scott starts his own paper company and they're gonna like work together or they're gonna they're gonna be opposing each other but then it's all gonna work out in the end and then we're gonna go back to our regular thing and like another example that was i remember in lost michelle rodriguez had a character arc on there for like half a season yes yes she did i remember that was like a thing for like just a hot second and then it was over. I think it might have been like six, maybe eight episodes. I do have to say, Lost does have one of my favorite bottle episodes as well to talk about like the weird stuff. It was this episode where for some reason we just focus on this brother and sister that are on the plane and we kind of follow their story for a little bit. You don't ever have like seen them really before, but they they just kind of like make them a part of the thing. They go through all this stuff and then something happens and they both get bitten by these like poisonous spiders that paralyze you but don't kill you and then the cast bury them in the sand and that's it like you just presume that they suffocated because they were buried in the sand and i was like this is the weirdest bottle episode ever but it was just like we're gonna just focus on these two random characters for like one episode because we have like so many other things to do that we're just gonna do this and, you know, I'm thinking about it, Lost is kind of a perfect, perfect encapsulation. I think it'll go into some of the not the cons of the long episodes or long seasons. It really had some amazing episodes. But I remember people who used to watch it as it was on air just say they felt like some episodes were just filler episodes because they did part of the structure of the show was to do the flashbacks. And they a lot of people at times felt certain flashbacks were just like, oh, it's a flashback and it's the whole episode and not much is happening. But I watched it back in a binge and I watched it all the way through. And I always actually, I never felt that way. So it was interesting though, how they used it as a construct to, I do think it was kind of filler episodes, but they ended up actually still being really, really good episodes. But you had 22, 24 episodes of a popular show that they had to fill in. 
And I think they created a, a construct in the very beginning of the show that allowed them to do these bottle episodes more often, though, to fill in that the amount of episodes they had to actually write for. It would be a really hard show to do now, I think, just production wise. It just it was a big swing at the time. Oh, yeah. No. And I think that's why it was so popular. But I think they did a really good job with it. But I nowadays that kind of show would just be a shorter order. Like you would get really more to the main ideas that they were going for and not have. But that's a perfect example of them having the space and the time to explore characters in in a different way, but in an engaging way as well where if they were on HBO, it would have pretty much just been mostly island scenes outside of especially important flashbacks that filled in story parts. So, Yeah, it would have been a different show entirely. Yeah. Um, So then what do you think are just some of the the frustrating things for a long season that weren't so great? My my big problem with that, with the long orders, is that with 22 episodes, there's just so much to fill that you do some of the bottle episodes don't work you're just treading water nothing happens they're not very inspired you get very like generic episodes that are very very forgettable i'm sure there's episodes of the office that like i don't even remember parks and rec or any of that stuff i do think that episodic comedies work better in that structure though because they're not beholden to this necessarily serialized structure where i know more common recent shows are serialized office is serialized parks and rec are but it's not necessarily the main driving factor they work within the serialization that they created though but they find situational comedy within that and i still think you can it's easier to do that or it's more forgiving of a form for a long order to do because you can just try zany things where I think drama is the one where it can start falling down for certain episodes more for drama than it does for comedy. Comedy is much more able to, I think, you know, play within that, that order. It just, it allows for it. And I think, I, I mean, for sure, I do agree with you, but I think the problem is there's certain things that start to happen. Like the whole, will they, won't they, of and to stick with the office, we'll do the, will they, won't they of like Pam and Jim, like, the amount of times that they had to like tease something happening and like push that and then to like have it fall apart you're just like oh my gosh just like we know where you're going we know that they're going to get together like just do it and then explore afterwards and i think those are you know some of the things that end up suffering because i think with a shorter order it would be like okay well we're going to get to the real meaningful stuff and like make that the priority instead of being like oh hey this can kind of get shoehorned into this scene and then that kind of explores this a little bit and then you know we can go for sure and that is probably the hardest thing is just feeling that order and you do get you're just you get you do hit a wall creatively a lot of times and you're just more time more chances for failure a pure numbers perspective so all right so then let's or more opportunities for success Let's flip it around. So like, what are the frustrating things that let's kick it off there with these short runs compared to the longer episode arcs? Um, the, the cons for me are that I think some shows get greenlit, which don't have eight episodes or 10 episodes of content. And then maybe only have four episodes of content. But because it's such a short thing, you can be like, oh, 
obviously you can fill eight shows with this stuff and then you can't so it ends up being like and i've noticed this very much in like the documentary space um because i think those are the ones that get the the shorter orders and the ones that i think about getting shorter orders like there's um like tiger king like tiger king could have been two episodes shorter and i think it was only an eight episode order but you you definitely get them being like oh this is eight and we have about enough content for six there's a a great documentary called who killed malcolm x again i think it's like a six episode order it could have been done in four you know not that it isn't interesting that they go but it, it starts to drag and you're just like oh so you're almost saying in this idea where the idea of an, a shorter episode order has come in vogue where you can do down to eight episodes. They're like, okay, well, it maybe is only four worthy of content, but maybe we can stretch it out to eight and we can hit that eight number because that's the accepted amount you should put out for a series where prior, if it was right. 13 episodes was the bare minimum you had to make in order to get greenlit for a show. And they look at, you only got four episodes worth of content. They're not going to say, Oh, let's try to stretch this out to 13. So, right. They're not going to be like, Oh, we're going to do 13 episodes of tiger King. We're not going to do 22 episodes of tiger King. Like that's just not like people are going to get burned out on it. I, I, I that's definitely, and that's much of a newer thing happening more recently, especially with all the streaming services. I think they're all like, I want to fill it. We need stuff. We need stuff. So they're willing to kind of push that limit sure. that then does make the shows weaker. So that, I think some of the ideas that are then getting greenlit just aren't as strong. I think sometimes you actually end up limiting your story. There was a show that I really like called Lock and Key that was a essentially like a YA you know, supernatural type of show that was on Netflix. And um, I think it only got a, an eight or 10 episode order. It could have easily been like a, a 16, a 22 episode order. There were there was enough stuff going on that I wanted to learn more about those characters. I wanted to spend more time with all those characters. I wanted to hang out with them more. And when it was over, I was just like, oh, I'm now going to second bad thing wait another year or year and a half or now that we're in the pandemic another decade for like the second season of this show to come out because they shot 10 now it gets dropped and then they had to figure out whether there there's going to be another 10 you know and then i gotta wait like a year like game of thrones game of thrones would be eight episodes long and it would go from like april to june and then that was it and then you had to wait like 10 years for the next one. I think Game of Thrones started when I was seven. And now I'm, I'm like, you know, 40. And like, we just finished the eighth season. You, you, your parents must have been really cool parents to be letting you watch Game of Thrones at age seven. They were, they were at seven. They were like, they're like, oh, check this out. They're like, you're going to have to start this now because by the time it actually finishes. <laughs> but like, that's the thing that's like a bummer. It's like you spend the short amount of time and you want more of it. And then it's just not there. And it's like a year, it's two years away. That That is one of my main points I had too, is I feel like there can be more explored if they had more episodes. And for whatever reason, the creators didn't want to make more. They didn't feel like they could or the budgetary reasons from the network side. I don't know, but I'm always, I, I get frustrated with those shows where I'm like, even just two episodes more, you could have explored this just a little bit more or tied up. There's a few loose ends that you didn't tie up that, 
And I'm not a person who always needs every storyline tied up. Like I get it, that's part of life and it's not necessarily the reason of the show. But you know, sometimes there's still more main storylines that you would have liked to know a little more. And that gets frustrating. And I touched on it earlier with the Game of Thrones having that short run in that final season, which again, you're finding more and more these more marquee shows, their final seasons, they're always doing a shorter amount of episodes. And at times that can be detrimental because then they're just trying to shoehorn all of this connective tissue into not enough episodes, which is absolutely what happened with Game of Thrones. I still gave it the benefit of the doubt. If you expand that out to even 10 episodes, you easily could have slow tracked some of the stuff that you were doing, especially with Daenerys and allowed that just to happen a little bit more naturally and organically. And that would have made, I think a lot of people less yep. critical of what finally happened in the, in the show. Oh my gosh. If you would have slowed down her storyline for that last episode or for the last season, 100%. It, somebody had mentioned this to me and I think they saw it on a meme or something like that, or a, a tweet that essentially season eight of Game of Thrones was so bad that even in a pandemic, it's become instantly irrelevant. Like you don't hear people going back and watching Game of Thrones now. And I think that's something where that is a fault of the short order. And I don't know if that was something that was done by the creators. I don't know if it was something that was done by the network. I don't know if it was something that was done by scheduling stuff or budget stuff and like i don't know where that idea came from i i think it's a little all the above i do think these showrunners and creators they these producers they get i think they do get worn out by the end and that was like the feeling it got from game of thrones but it's detrimental i mean yeah the audience go along for these rides oh, sure. for this long and then you kind of you know kneecap them at the end is it's it's a little frustrating so let's look at some of the good things then though of having shorter season runs and i think the easiest one is that we touched on it earlier you can really hone in on exactly the meat of what your idea is and you don't have all this fluff and filler 100 percent, i agree with that and i will even venture to say you can tell a deeper story in 10 episodes because then there are things that are like very nuanced thing that a character can do that have to have repercussions throughout other episodes where if it's over 22 episodes, you can't have people make bad decisions and have that like go through. Like if you did that, it would have to reverberate through like three or four episodes, which seems unrealistic, but you can have somebody make a bad choice or an off comment in episode two and then episode three and four have to deal with that. And that's still like a third of your season dedicated to something which makes them a much deeper character because what they do matters 100%. Totally. And that just got me thinking in those longer season runs, they almost do mini arcs within the 22 episodes, say. And you then have to find those new arcs every four or five episodes where you can kind of stretch out those arcs over. It's both kind of happening, like you said, within a few episodes, but it still has a connective tissue throughout then the full 13 or the full 10, whatever it is. And it has repercussions even in the end. And it's not just in that mini encapsulated moment that it's happening. There will be a larger reverberation, but that's because you're also remembering it and it's, and it's still relevant because it's a shorter amount of time that you have to cover. And I, that's actually my second one is that these short ones are coming 
generally because of the streaming services now so that you remember everything that's happening because you're watching it two episodes, three episodes at a time. And I'm, I'm speaking much more in the like hour long space where you're doing like an action thing or a, a drama thing. You're remembering stuff that happened that there's no way you would be expected to remember if it happened like four weeks ago. Like in watching Veronica Mars, one of the things I noticed is that if there is a main point that they need to hit and they need you to remember, they have to take a minute of a scene to be like, hey, didn't you this and that with that person? On top of having a recap at the beginning of the episode, they're like, yeah, didn't Duncan used to be your boyfriend? Like just so everybody is like super clear why this thing matters. And you don't have to do that with the 10 season thing. Like you can just kind of like roll right on through. Like we're just watching a 10 hour movie and taking the breaks that we want to take. Yeah, and they get they're very much more complex. I mean, look at Game of Thrones, look at even like uh, like how how much information was hard to just track even over 10 or 13 episodes in the beginning and then Yes. having to do that for 22 episodes a season would be very daunting. I think Lost was probably again one of the last ones that was able to do that as far as having those long runs being that complex and rules and things happening that you kind of had to remember far back. Yes off of that point that I remember, and this is kind of a good for this and also a negative for the long ones is the onboarding. So if you want to jump into a show and catch up on it halfway through the the run. So if you want to catch up, you're like, you've been hearing about the show and you're like, but it's season three. It's like, okay, well it's only 10 episodes in a season for season one and two. That's not that daunting to catch up and try to join in where in 20, Oh, I have to watch 44, 66 episodes in order to catch up and get on board with what everybody's watching right now, that is very daunting. So that makes that onboarding of getting in in the middle much easier to do with these shorter run shows. Yeah, I remember having to be like, what do I actually need to know about anything that's happening so that I can like catch up on season four? And it's like, well, and I've had times where my wife has watched a show and like, I'll be like, all right, just fill me in. And then something will happen like two minutes into an episode and she'll be like, okay, pause. Now, this person was initially a bad guy, but then they became a good guy. But then there was this little time that they went back to being a bad guy and then they sold drugs for a minute and then they didn't sell drugs, but the drugs were actually sold by their twin brother. And then now you're caught up, but that's why she's looking weird at that guy. Okay, go. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and I'm like, like, you're right, you're right. Onboarding is a much better process now. Um, do you have a, what? What else you got? Do you think was like a good thing for the shorter episodes? The overall feeling of it being much more focused. Like, there, like it, it feels like you got like essentially a ten-hour movie, and or an eight-hour movie, or a, or a six-hour movie, and it's able to tell this one story over that and then if you can bring those characters into a new space then you can do another season but i think that to me is the is the big benefit of all of this is that you're able to tell stories that don't fit in the in a theatrical environment in a much better way and to be the flip side of the coin to the point that I had made before, you're also getting 
stories that wouldn't normally be told because they can be told in like four episodes with a six episode order or six episodes with an eight episode order. The fact that we get to see the Tiger King and like know that that character exists and know that it happened and like is very niche or that you can get a documentary series about who killed Malcolm X, which was super fascinating and I had no idea how in depth it was. If somebody says that has to be 22 episodes, never would be on television. If somebody was like, oh, it's a four hour or a six hour documentary about people, whoever killed Malcolm X, people would be like, ugh, I'm not watching it. But if it's like, oh, this is a limited run on Netflix, it's six episodes, you're like, oh, six episodes, I can do that. That's like two nights, like three nights of watching. Like, that's fine, I'll do that. And you're not expected to like, consume it all as one piece but it is all one piece with just like a ramp in and a ramp out so that you know when you can turn it off you're not also committing to something for the long term like you can kind of get in watch it consume it and get out and not feel like oh now i'm on the hook like here's another show i'm going to be like watching for a few years now or something like that because if it's you know if you're assuming that it's good and stuff like that so there is all that too with the shorter runs both season-wise, having limited series or shorter uh, episode orders. And I just want to go back to the idea that you talked about. My last point is just the attention to detail. There is something for some reason why, I guess with the shorter yeah. run, the attention to detail is because you don't have time to mess around and do as much exploring, even though t we talk about TV is great because you can actually explore characters more than say in a film. But on the shorter runs, you do have to kind of be more concise. So. There's just a lot of detail and nuance, and I think you brought that up before that it they really just hone in on do small things where when you rewatch these shows again, you see all these other little Easter eggs or hidden moments or clues that they dropped in there that fit in with the larger story that they're telling, which I find really interesting. And I find that happens more on these specific shows that are uh, only 13, 10 episodes long. And I think it's part of the sort of auteur showrunner is drawn to these types of shows as well. They're the ones typically that have come up with the idea and pitched it and they know this world and they're living this world. So they have all this extra knowledge of it that they're find a way to convey visually or, you know, uh, cryptically throughout the show as well. So I, I think there's, and, and that also goes in hand in hand with this other idea, I think where, the budgets and the scope of the shows are disproportionate. So like on a bigger budget or on a longer uh, run on 22 episode type of show, they have a bigger budget overall, but when you allocate it out over the amount of episodes, it doesn't necessarily track the same, you don't get the same value out of it as if the shorter run shows have a smaller budget and sometimes they're tight, but they can somehow squeeze better value out of that dollar. It feels like because they know they only have 13 episodes so they can find ways to make it go further than on the 22 you still got to hit all these certain points and these these actors are all going to get paid certain things and you have to hit certain set pieces and or go through these certain um structures of the show that cost certain amount of money you you don't have as much flexibility it feels like right and it's like one of those things where it's like okay we can blow up the empire state building in episode two because we can steal that special effects budget from episode three through seven where we're just going to have them talking to each other in an office and you know like you get that you know 
that it's like, okay, that may be a little boring, but like we got them with episode two when we blew up the Empire State Building. Yeah, I hear you. That's, that's a really good point. So, yeah, so I, I think it's an eternal debate. I don't think we necessarily settled anything here. I think... Uh... I think we settled it. I think everybody understands. Everybody understands the correct answer, which is obvious to everybody and doesn't need to be stated because we've made it so clear. <laughs> so clear. I mean, it's clearly clear and super obvious. So thank you for Tony and making sure that everybody knew it was obvious. And if you don't know right. that it's obvious, so. then I don't know what you've been listening to. Check the show notes. <laughs> Well, always check the show notes, but yes, specifically for now. Um, all right, man. Well, I don't have anything else on the, on this topic. Do you have anything that you want to spotlight tonight? I, no, you know what? I, the only thing I will do, and only because I just thought about it while we were talking about it, um, really do watch Who Killed Malcolm X on um, Netflix. The conspiracy around his death is vast and it is super interesting i think it says a lot about what our government was doing at the time i think it says a lot about um how we treat uh people who are making like a name for themselves in a movement and people who are trying to change the world and i think it also speaks to how organizations start to implode once you have people with you know big egos starting to butt heads and i think it's a very interesting story um i had only known malcolm x through his um autobiography that i you know i think i read in college um and only vaguely what he did as a a civil rights leader Um, But then after watching this, I did do a lot more reading and his influence is, I mean, obviously far and wide, but I did not realize there was such gross incompetence around the investigation of his death. And there was so much that was never atoned for. Um, around his death. So it's uh, Who Killed Malcolm X. It's available on Netflix as a documentary series. It's six episodes. Sorry to bash it that it should only be four, but like once you watch it, you'll be like, oh, they could have t- cut two episodes out of this. Uh, doesn't mean it's not a good show. It just could have been a little tighter. Um, so I'm going to spotlight one of my, a good friend of mine. He's a comedian in uh, his Instagram and TikTok accounts. Uh, it's Alex Katzif and his handle is Think Curly. So at Think Curly for on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, he's really blowing up on TikTok right now. So he keeps uh, pumping out some really funny, uh, good content on there. So if you're on the TikToks, uh, go give him a check and give him a follow, man. Awesome. Awesome. I think I'm on all the TikToks. All the TikToks. Isn't it obvious? <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Yes. Um, if there's nothing else, man, I will catch you next episode. Next episode. All right, later, man. Peace. blank on her name Claire Bowen no uh Kristen I'm looking at her face god the lead in the B in apartment 23